okay, so what happens to me in October? Do I lose everything that I had? Do I need to scramble my team to go after a bunch of things that are different? I'm just kind of confused, right? I don't really understand what my transition process is going to be like from MPN into the Cloud Partner Program. Welcome to the Ultimate Guide to Partnering. In this podcast, Vince Minzione, a proven sales and partner executive, brings together leaders to discuss transformational trends and deconstruct successful strategies to help technology leaders like you achieve your greatest results through successful partnering. And now your host, Vince Minzione. Welcome to, or welcome back to the Ultimate Guide to Partnering. I'm Vince Menzione, your host. And my mission is to help leaders like you unlock the leadership principles and learnings of the best in the business to get partnerships right, optimize for success, and deliver your greatest results. Decoding Microsoft's new cloud partner program, why it's shaping the future direction of the channel, and how you can optimize for success as a partner. My next guest on Ultimate Guide to Partnering is one of the most influential people shaping the future of Microsoft's partner programs. Dan Rippey is the director of the new Microsoft Cloud Partner Program and joins us to help you best align for success by understanding what just rolled out and what plans Microsoft has in store. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed welcoming Dan Rippey. Dan! I am so excited to have you as a guest on Ultimate Guide to Partnering. You're the director for the Microsoft Cloud Partner Program, a topic clearly on the minds of most Microsoft partners these days. So I'm really excited for this conversation. Oh, it's my pleasure. I, I've been following the work that you and your team drive, and I'm just so thankful for everything that you do for the channel. The advice that you give is always rock solid, and I see our partners benefit from modalities like this. Thank you for driving this. So July was a really big month for you, but October promises to be even bigger. This is a perfect starting point. On October 3rd this year, we begin to say goodbye to the MPN program and its legacy silver and gold endorsements. And we welcome in the new Microsoft Cloud Partner Program. This aligns our program structure to Microsoft's six core solution areas. And so one of the major initiatives behind the change is to create clarity for our mutual customers and really to simplify things for you as our partners. We do that by dropping our 18 silver and 18 gold in market competencies, and we simplify the program. So the way that we go to market and sell as a business is now aligned with the way we go to market and sell programmatically with you, with our partners. Such a big announcement. And I want to highlight a few things from this conversation, right? Microsoft has been doing partnerships better and longer than just about anybody, first off. And I've always talked to partners about aligning with Microsoft's priorities and scorecard. What I believe you've done here, the simplification process, is you're helping the partners better align to what's important to Microsoft. Yeah. If you look at the way we build capacity, we Microsoft has a big and diverse business, but it's actually much simpler than most people think. Our business groups and our product teams are aligned by solution area. And so we have three that now are core to the Azure business with digital app innovation, data and AI and infrastructure. One with modern work that actually used to be combined with security, but we've recently pulled out and elevated security as its own solution area. And then the last one with business applications, which covers dynamics and the entirety of the power platform. You had to be on the inside with Microsoft to understand how we were structured and to understand how to plug your sales motion into that business model. 
But now it's front and center. Everybody sees it. We've exposed ourselves and the way we're structured and the way we go to market so that our partners feel like they can plug into that without this need for a translation dictionary in trying to map their business model to ours. Many of our listeners may want to better understand from your perspective, what changed about the programs at Microsoft and what has stayed the same? Our starting point is always customer trust. If we have any potential for erosion of customer trust in the channel's capability, it's hugely detrimental to our business and even more detrimental for our partners. And so when we looked at where we had come from, there was a lot of strength in the competency ecosystem when it was first built. When you flash back to the early 2000s, right? The cloud didn't even exist yet. Microsoft hadn't birthed or killed a Windows phone. We didn't have a search engine. None of that stuff existed. We had a productivity suite with Office and we had an operating system. We were also in the early stages of building our business applications, our dynamics business out and the multitude of acquisitions that created that. And so when we started with a competency structure, we needed a way to classify partner capability. And we, we decided that competence was a strong market word and competencies would be the way we represent that. And they serviced the business really well for a long time because it, it let us segment partner capabilities. It let partners pick up multiple capabilities and areas representative for their business. And we could tie things to it. We could tie incentive programs to it, marketplace presence to it, co-sell motions to it, all of that. But in the end, as the business got bigger and the portfolio got more diverse, what we realized we had was this house for everybody. We had one home for our services partners, for our ISVs, our OEM device partners, our IoT and mixed reality business. All these things emerged along the way and we just shoved everybody in this house. And we had genericized the look and feel of the home to accommodate the needs of everybody. And in the end, what we realized is that our customers really had a hard time stepping through that house and understanding based on these endorsements that we had given on silver and gold competencies what our partners' core capabilities were. Because the truth is, most of our partners just went to market by the precious metal designation they had. They said, I'm a gold Microsoft partner. I'm a silver Microsoft partner. But what really mattered was the differentiator tied to that, to say, I'm a, I'm a cloud biz apps partner at the gold tier with Microsoft. But we started to lose our way in the market with that. And so we said, you know what? We don't need one house for everybody. We need a neighborhood of homes. We need a house for services partners, a house for IoT, mixed reality, a house for OEM devices, a house for ISVs. And even each one of those houses might have a couple of doorways, might have a door for startup businesses, might have a door for breadth businesses who are just trying to get established in market, maybe only working in one or two geos, might have a doorway for big multinational, well-established technology firms. So that's what we're building now is that neighborhood. The first house on the street is our house primarily designed for services partners with these solution partner designations. And I'll say the paint's kind of drying on the walls of that one, but we unlock that house on October 3rd and we start welcoming partners into it. It's not to say that a house is exclusive for services partners. We would welcome a partner of any type into that home, but the business model that was used to create that house and kind of the furniture, the fit and finish, the design and structure of the house is really built for that services model. It's assessing our partners based on three things, a portfolio of skilled professionals, a track record of driving successful customer outcomes, and a history of performance. We know that we also need to build houses for all of these other partner types that I've mentioned. And ISV is certainly front and center at the, at the entryway to the neighborhood to say, hey, this house is long since past due. Let's get to, together and let's start constructing this as quickly as we can. But I think the same is, is, could be said for all the other homes. When you look at MCPP, when you look at the Cloud Partner Program a year or two from now, what you're going to see is that full neighborhood built out. So what I heard you say is that the Microsoft Cloud Partner Program is going to be a neighborhood and there's going to be separate homes or there's going to be differentiation between. And I think there was a level of 
ambiguity, I would say, when the announcements were made back earlier this year. So I, I appreciate the clarity. Is there anything else from frequently asked questions that you get today from partners? that you believe needs clarity? Good one. A lot of anxiety on the transition process, right? Change is hard. And we get feedback from partners constantly that says keeping up with the pace of change at Microsoft can be burdensome. And I think we've really tried to take that comment in stride. And we tried to learn from areas where change has landed well. We've enabled our market makers to really slingshot ahead of our business and set the pace with the market on where we're going together. And also looked at you know, some of the changes where we've had negative reaction to and say, could we have landed this a different way? Could we have given partners more notice? Could we have opened up opportunities for engagement and feedback? And so on the backside of those learnings, I think there's two things that really stand out for me. First one is the way we deployed the new cloud partner program changes was really the first time we've tried to write this playbook on saying, let's announce this at least six months before it goes live. And then let's just go into listening mode. Let's do world tours, let's talk to partners, let's set up advisory councils, let's do co-design sessions with our ecosystem, and let's figure out in these changes what's working and what's not. And that six months has been an incredible runway for our team to learn from partners on some of the things that we've had to adjust along the way. And we've actually made those adjustments. We've Recently, we've made adjustments to the business applications designation. We've rolled back some of the requirements out of the Azure data and AI solution partner designation for some exams that didn't really make sense there because our partners came with that feedback and the market validated it, right? When we bring that to customers and say, hey, how do you perceive this? Would you think of, what, what do you think of a partner who has this capability? It helps us fine tune these programs before we ever turn them on. The second piece is partners are saying, okay, so what happens to me in October? Do I lose everything that I had? Do I need to scramble my team to go after a bunch of things that are different? And in this, we've actually tried to make FY23 a year of transition and telling partners benefits that you had. Most partners really lean heavily on software licenses, Azure credits, partner technical consultation and pre-sales advisory services. We're not going to change anything. So if you're a silver or gold partner today, you're going to go into this year and the benefit package is going to be completely unchanged this October. We're also going to extend that. So when you hit your normal annual renewal phase that happens to you every year, we're going to let you renew those silver or gold benefits next year. And we currently have no planned sunset date for those legacy benefit kits. The other big piece partners ask about is lots of things have used gold competency status as a precursor requirement, right? You look at our incentive programs, you look at our commercial marketplace and the ability to publish services into our app source storefront. You look at our co-sell ecosystem and the requirements to get co-sell ready. All those things have always hinged on gold status. We're not going to change that this year. And so everything that you've qualified for historically, you're going to continue to qualify for in FY23. And we'll make adjustments along the way. As we approach FY24, we'll start rethinking our incentive program qualifications, our co-sell programs. But we want this year to be about a soft landing for partners that says, hey, take some time, understand how you want to invest and structure your business with Microsoft, move when you're ready, and give us feedback. If there's something that's working for you, let us know. But more importantly, if there's something that's not working for you, you're probably not the only partner that it's not working for. And we need to hear from you. Because if it's an area we can help rethink some of the structure of the program or rethink our transition timelines, we're going to do that. What are the key watering holes or listening mechanisms that you're using today, Dan? There's three. The first one is upstream. We've now started a process of doing co-design sessions with partners. And we talked about this quite a bit at Inspire. But for our ISV programs, we're actually bringing in ISVs of all different types, sizes, geographies, maturity models, and saying, hey, come on up to the dry erase board and we'll hand you a pen. Uncap the pen and help us design the program that works for you and the program that works for your customers. 
And those have been so valuable for us because in the end, you end up with a lot of different drawings from a lot of different partner types, but you can create commonality and start to build program structure that works for most partners. And then you can think about those outliers and say, how do we embrace their business models as well? The second one is we have partner advisory councils where we do a lot of pre-testing with partners and said, hey, this is the direction Microsoft thinks we're going to go. What's your feedback to this? And they really help us get deep in program requirements. For example, this partner capability score that's now core to the cloud partner program, they helped us right size the weighted metrics we put on each score, how many points you should get for a person who passes an intermediate skilling exam versus an advanced skilling exam, all those things where you really need to get in the minutia of the program. And you need feedback from a representative sample of partners that said, hey, if we were to turn this on, would it be met with resistance or would it be met with celebration? And then the last one is as our support team, honestly, I mean, We obsess over the data that comes in every ticket, every phone call to our support staff, whether the partner saying something as tactical as, hey, I understand my capability score, and I think the numbers that I'm seeing in the skilling metric are wrong, to as broad as saying, hey, I'm just kind of confused, right? I don't really understand what my transition process is going to be like from MPN into the cloud partner program. We aggregate all that data up, and we go back to the drawing board and say, how could we have fed answers to this? so that partners don't have to be on the phone for hours with our support team. And we can give them quick answers in the experience to give them clarity on where we're going and how they're going to get there and what their footprint looks like today and what it's going to look like tomorrow. We strive to build those digital experiences to be self-service as much as we can. Our support teams really are the litmus test when the things that we are attempting aren't working really well of what we can go back and fix. I love what you're doing here. And as you might know, I work quite a bit with ISVs. And you mentioned ISVs here in terms of working through and whiteboarding what needs to happen. I was hoping you could share more about the emphasis on improved engagement with ISVs. I know you and Julie talked about industry solutions as a big topic area. How can ISV partners best align and engage to drive deeper here? This topic probably gets the most attention from almost anything my team's talking about these days. Number one, because there's just a massive army of people at Microsoft that are embraced and working to build for this ISV model success. And number two, because I think we're a little bit latent to market with ISV offers. And I'm open to say that because in true Microsoft fashion, we try to get things right on day one. And we've watched our competitors kind of work around this area. And we've seen some things in the market that work really well. And we've seen the market attempt some things that aren't working really well. We've taken those learnings in stride and said, how can we, when we deploy things for ISVs, we really got to hit the nail on this one. And so when I talk about the neighborhood of homes, this is the next house that's kind of under construction. If you imagine if you're going to walk into the halls of Microsoft and you walk down the hallway for the partner team, you'd see this house being built right now in, in conversations that are happening in conference rooms with our executive leadership team, with leaders across our global demand center, our global partner solutions organization, our commercial marketplace team, our partner center engineering team everybody's really rallying around this ISV persona and making sure that we get this right. And there's a couple of things I think it's good for the ecosystem to know. And so this house, if you can envision the house for ISVs in the kind of the front of the neighborhood, it's going to have a couple of doorways. We know that we need a door for startup ISVs and we've actually delivered that. It's in market right now under the Founders Hub. You can go to your favorite search engine and search Microsoft Founders Hub. You'll see those offerings that are in market for early stage startups. And there's actually a whole maturity model that for startups that the Founders Hub team has, and they try to right-size the level of benefits based on where you are in the startup process. For our breadth ISVs, really the big kind of core base of technology partners, many of these partners are trying to get their first or second solution in market. They may be trying to geo-expand a solution they've had some success with, and they want to start evolving that into be available for other markets. When you look at our ISV success program, 
can go to your favorite search engine and, and search Microsoft ISV success, or you can just shortcut it, go to microsoft.com forward slash ISV. What you're going to see is a program that really embraces that. And they've actually accumulated a set of benefits. I think the, the total value of those is worth almost $130,000 that are designed for ISVs, software licenses, cloud credits, technical consultation, pre-sales advisory services, all the things that an ISV needs, not only to get into our marketplace, but also to be very successful once they're in market. And that becomes really a bridge to, to selling and co-selling with Microsoft. The last door we've got to create, and this is the one where we started a co-design sessions around the time of Inspire, is that third doorway for well-established technology providers that probably have a number of solutions in the market. They're probably representing the saleability of those solutions in multiple geographies. These partners are telling us, hey, we want to be badged and branded differently. We can do business at a level of scale that is globally. We can, we can close multi-million dollar transactions with Microsoft's field sellers very quickly. I know that this ecosystem wants to be endorsed that way. And they also want to be endorsed by industry. They want to say these, the solutions we've built, there are certain key industries we target these for that we have a depth of expertise on. And so that's my team's job right now is building those programs for those ISVs. Once that's ready, I think we've got to package this house a little bit better. I think we can, we can go to market and say, hey, ISVs, here's your home. You've got a couple of different doorways to enter the home. You get to pick based on where your business is at this moment in time, what's the right door for you. And we'll show you the pros of each one and we'll help you, we'll help lead you through that doorway when the moment is appropriate. But so we're trying to get this right and as much partner feedback as we can get on this one, I would love for that to come back in from the channel. Yeah, I would love to provide feedback back through this podcast to you, Dan. I think they're doing some really great things. I think about this when the program was first launched and I think about, don't forget, ISVs stand for independent software vendors, which have their own standalone businesses that don't necessarily just rely on Microsoft. And you need the program needs to support that, which I believe you're doing here. And these well-established organizations as well, like how are you thinking about the alignment there? Is There's a maturity model, I, I gather from here, right? Founder... Founders Hub, taking care of startups, ISV success, dealing with what we call breath ISVs. That means certainly earlier stage, not necessarily managed by a Microsoft partner manager. And then the well-established where there's, I call it more white glove support for the relationship. Yep. Yep. You got it. And I think one of the key pieces is everybody makes this assumption of like that there's this pyramid and you've got to climb to the top of the pyramid as fast as you can. And I actually, I don't think that's true from looking at a lot of different partner models and looking at the ways partners have found success for us. A lot of times I get asked, hey, how do I get a partner development manager, an account manager, a PDM from Microsoft? And I'll counter that question and say, why do you think you need a PDM? And what do you think that person is going to do for you? I think the answer is when you look programmatically at these different doors, understand and set targets for where you want your business to be with Microsoft. And an easy example I use is imagine if you were getting a new co-sell engagement from Microsoft's field every couple of days, every two or three days, right? Everybody thinks, man, that would be great. My sales team's phone rings every two or three days from another Microsoft seller trying to bring me business. But what happens if they're bringing you business in markets you're not ready to scale into yet? What happens if they're looking for capabilities and the solutions you haven't matured to yet? You now have this engagement with Microsoft's field sellers that's bringing you into sales engagements. You, your business might just not be prepared for at this time, and that's okay. You may find, hey, these solutions aren't as customizable as we want them to be. We're still building towards that. And so you get in front of these customers with Microsoft's field and you realize we're not really set up for this yet. We need to we, we need to grow a little bit more. We need to invest in our solutions a bit more. We need to invest with Microsoft a bit more so that we can be invited into these sales engagements. Take the time that you need to do that, whether that's weeks, months, or years. Think about how and where you want to scale with Microsoft 
and adjust yourself programmatically to that. Let that be the guide that starts to show Microsoft, hey, here's what how we want to engage with you, Microsoft. Here's the level of, here's the geographies we want to work with you in. Here's the solutions that we've really invested deeply in our business. Here's how customizable these are. Here's the customer scenarios we can really tie these into or the sales plays using Microsoft vernacular where these solutions can be directly correlated with. Here's the industries we sell into. But more importantly, here's what we don't. Here's the industries we're not ready for. Here's the sales plays or solution errors that we're not fully capable in. It's okay to tell Microsoft that. And it's okay to ask Microsoft for that level of investment to get ready, but just find the place that works for you and let the program cater to those needs. I'm happy to announce that PartnerTap has become a founding sponsor of Ultimate Guide to Partnering. PartnerTap is the only partner ecosystem platform designed for the enterprise. Their technology makes it easy to align channel teams with automated account mapping, letting you control what data you share while building a partner revenue engine. I'm so excited to have them on board. Be on the lookout for events, content, and more. And I'm so excited to continue working together in our exciting year ahead. So I want to come back to something you said. You mentioned this. I hear this all the time, right? We want to be a managed partner. We want the attention of Microsoft. If you're not a managed partner, how do you get the attention? We're going to talk about marketplaces here in a moment, but like, how do you think through this? Like, what does it mean? Why do I need to go put all my deals in Partner Center if I'm not managed by Microsoft, I guess is what I would say. Yeah, this question comes up all the time. And I, I think the key is two things. One, when we structure the program, we set targets for every every step of the program, right? So the solution partner designations, these new six designations that are landing in October. And then if you look at each designation, there's generally five, six, or seven specializations that nest into those. They used to be called advanced specializations. Now they're, they're just called specializations. These are effectively our, our sales workloads, right? So we, we call them sales plays in years past. We call them solution plays now. But what we're doing in all of this is we're looking at incoming customer demand globally, global customer demand and saying, how many partners do we think we need in every solution area and every subordinate specialty or specialization of those solution areas what do we think the right number of partners is in our ecosystem to be able to service that global customer demand? And it's hard to get that right because if you have too many partners, instead of managing expectations, you all you do is manage disappointment where the partner says, look, I did all this work. I got this endorsement. I built capabilities and I waited. My sales team waited for the phone to ring and it never rang. We didn't get any leads from your commercial storefront. We didn't get any leads from your qualified referrals program. We didn't get any leads from the partner directory. We didn't get any leads from Microsoft's field sellers. And that's the worst outcome for me because I look and I'm like, you've already executed the investment and you can't, there's no refund on that. And it didn't yield any net new business with Microsoft. We also look at the opposite, the deficit of capacity, where we have so much customer demand coming out on a workload and we're trying to connect that demand with partners who can service it. And we don't have enough partners because then we start, that's where Microsoft really falls down because customers are coming saying, I want this thing. We're saying, okay, our partner channel drives most of the business for that thing that you're asking for, but our partners are busy. They're fully saturated with business against that workload. And that's where we leave money on the table, right? So it's a loss for our partners because I I wasn't able to make that connection. It's a loss for Microsoft. It's a loss for the customer. Everybody loses. What we strive to do is we strive to right-size that model between incoming customer demand and the number of partners that we need globally to service it. We slice that by region and we say we need this many partners in Western Europe, this many partners in Southeast Asia, this many partners in North America. And we try to make those connections and recruit partners into those programs to make sure we've got the right number 
within that threshold of service capacity without either an abundance or a deficit. So for our partners, what this means is look at where Microsoft is going. And I think this like influencers like you, Vince, do a very good job at this, at creating a roadmap for the channel and saying, this is something Microsoft is investing in. If you look at something as simple as what we did two years ago when we split modern work and security used to be together as a combined solution area. When Microsoft split that out, what you can see between the lines that's happening is Microsoft's making a big investment in its security solution area by bringing that up as a standalone and then creating specializations that nest within that because security is an area of focus and investment for our business and for yours. And so as a partner, the key piece is figure out how to plug into that. Look at the areas where Microsoft has deficiencies in partner capacity and your organization has a capability to build solutions, services, intellectual property offerings against those that you can bring to market. Because as we start to saturate our field and our commercial marketplace with incentive programs to prioritize those things, that's when we can start bringing you new business faster. I'd say that if you have an account manager, they're probably helping doing some of this mapping with you, right? They're creating a multi-year investment strategy for your business. They're investigating areas where your business can make new growth investments in areas where Microsoft is going to start to incentivize down the line. And so it might speed up the conversation a little bit. But honestly, if you just follow Microsoft closely and you follow the influencer communities that track our programs, you can get the same level of information. What you said is so profound. I talk about agility as one of the seven key characteristics of successful partnering. And what you said regarding that listening mechanism, listen to where your partner is going. Where is Microsoft headed? And intuitively knowing and investing in areas, maybe micro-investing in areas where you might fail fast, but ultimately you'll find the areas where your greatest source of success or future success lies. Yep. I want to dive into one of these actually. So marketplaces, people are still questioning, like, why should I invest in marketplaces? These ISVs are saying like, what is important to me? I already have a channel. I already have a go-to-market. But marketplaces were front and center at the Inspire Conference, and you had featured previous guests, Jake Swenson and Tackle, with regards to an announcement. Why do ISV partners need a clear marketplace strategy? Yeah, this one comes up constantly. And I think the buying patterns in our industry have evolved. What used to be centralized in big central IT shops and then the kind of CIO to CTO transition, the it's decentralized now. You look at If you look at some of the work Gartner has done on the new chasm of buying, in a typical SMB or enterprise organization, there are so many decision makers involved in the buying process, not necessarily in these big central IT firms anymore, that you've got to create a, this credible place where customers can go and say, okay, when I think about any Microsoft workload, where do I start? Where do I at least see a catalog of solutions that have been designed to solve as a customer, our needs at this moment in time. So we can deploy something quickly, celebrate a rapid win. And if we need to customize, we can work with a partner who has the capability and competence to be able to do that, to customize a solution for our business. Our commercial storefronts, AppSource and the Azure Marketplace are really designed to do that. And so when you think about this, where these storefronts started in their infancy, it was effectively a directory of solutions, right? As they, they were, we call them contact me listings where the partner could showcase the things that they had built. They could align those by industry, by solution area, by workload, by technical capability, by region and geo. But at the end of the day, you were clicking a big blue button that said, I'm a customer. This thing looks interesting. I want a salesperson to call me and give me a demo or a test drive or maybe talk about what my challenges are. We've evolved from that. And so now it's really the center stage is transactable offers in our marketplace. 
And that solves a couple of things. One that our, many of our partners actually need, they, they want to host billing and invoicing on Microsoft. They want those solutions to sit on subscriptions that are hosted centrally so they can get accountability and record of all the transaction and Azure consumer revenue they're driving. But they want their customers to have a trusted way to transact those offers through multiple geos, multiple currencies to be able to deploy things quickly. If you think about a, a smaller mid-sized partner who's trying to build all those capabilities, it's incredibly burdensome to have to create all that from scratch or to have to go to another independent provider and put all those marketplace logistics in place. You can walk onto our storefront today and you can have these things deployed in a matter of days now. The other piece is customers want a sense of security, right? They want to know every solution that's in Microsoft storefront. Has it been vetted by Microsoft? Does it contain malware? Is it well architected on whatever Azure services it's going to use? Are there principles and practices of security that were implemented in the way the solution is deployed and was initially architected. We do all of that. And so for a partner who's never been through this, this process of deploying a transactable offer on our storefronts, I can tell you it's pretty rigorous. When you go and click the submit button to get your offer deployed, we have a certification team that's going to look at everything. They're going to look at your technical architectural diagrams. They're going to look at the Azure services you're using. They're going to look at the way you've deployed. They're going to look at the bench of your sales team and where that sales team sits to be able to answer the call. They're going to look at whether or not you have a demo or a test drive available for partners to download and start interacting with this thing before they ever enter the process of a sales engagement. The marketplace has enabled all that. And so for many of our partners, it's been a game changer to be able to just walk onto that infrastructure that's already built for them. And I think for some of our bigger partners, there's a, a maturation process of getting them ready for that, for those partners to say, look, I already have all this. I don't, why do I need to do this? I think there's a reality of, you look at our, even our partner reported ACR programs and our co-sell business, transactable offers and market actually solve for a lot of that. It lets us reliably know how's a partner transacting their business with Microsoft? How much consumption are they driving? Because we want to give partners credit for all of that hard work. And we don't really want to burden you with having to report all of that manually. We just want it to flow through the marketplace. And that's where we're going with CoSell. You said some very interesting things here. I just want to amplify a few points, right? The customer buying decisions are happening differently today. They're happening in the lines of business. It's not the CIO shop that's making all the decisions, right? And the seats at the table that are helping influence that. And I think about this ecosystem strategy and how marketplaces become the aggregator of your ecosystem strategy and allowing you to point customers or point a partner. In fact, it might be an influencer partner, it might be a transactional partner, it might be a support partner back to the marketplace solution. It's fun. It's a fungible offer. Then also just the simplicity of driving the solution. And let's not forget leveraging, right? The, what is it? 50,000 Microsoft sellers, the 17 million partner feet on the street. And in fact, the millions of customers that can access and buy off of the marketplace. Yeah, this is what a lot of the a lot of our partners actually never see this. There's another side of our storefront that's not exposed publicly, and we call it the co-sell catalog. But it's really a it's a different entry point into AppSource and the Azure marketplace that's designed just for Microsoft employees. And imagine if you could walk into favorite store, right? You go into Costco, and there's a little placard on a product. It says the price, a couple of features of the product, maybe the manufacturer's name, the SKU, whatever the item number that the store has on it. But if you could flip that over and you could see how many times has that product been transacted this month? What's the rate of return? What's the level of customer satisfaction with the product? How many people who look at the product actually execute a purchase on it? 
we effectively have that for our field because when we are going to co-sell with a partner, we want to know all those things, right? We want to know what is the time of transaction between Microsoft requesting a co-sell engagement with a partner and the partner actually accepting or rejecting that opportunity to engage with us. What's the win rate? What's the average deal size? What's the deal velocity? What's the partner's track record of co-sell with us historically? How many markets is that product co-sold in? Where does that partner have their sales force positioned and oriented globally so that we can call salespeople in that partner's organization in whatever market we're trying to close the deal in? All those things, right? We make a multitude of data we make available to our field sellers because it helps them be better informed in the buying process. And it, there's this stigma that like, to get into this co-sell world, you got to be the best partner. You got to be in Microsoft's top 1% or top 10% of partners. And that's actually not true. Every marketplace solution that we have, we expose and make available to our field sellers. There may be areas where, so sellers on the phone with a customer, customer defines their needs, sellers immediately translating those needs to workloads, to products, to industry, to line of business. And they're narrowing down their search results in the catalog saying, how many partners do we have that built this thing that can solve this customer's problem as quickly as possible? The, so powerful. Yeah. So powerful. Yeah. And they, they might find, I mean, that may be a top tier partner. The sellers are certainly looking for certain endorsements to know that we have, we can reliably co-sell with a partner. But a lot of times when we look at like niche solutions of things that some really interesting breadth partners have built, these sellers are discovering these in their catalog and saying, you know what? I think that's a perfect match to what this customer needs. And it doesn't necessarily matter if you're not, if you don't, if you're not an Azure expert MSP or you don't have an advanced specialization, if that seller can quickly discover that solution and find it's going to be a great match for their customer, they'll take a bet on you. And I think for partners, Keep that in mind and like let them roll the dice and, and give them the ability to find you and connect with you. Some really interesting food for thought for me and for the partners that are listening today. So I want to make sure we amplify that. But this is the ultimate guide to partnering. And from your perspective, what do you see from the best of the best partners, Dan? I think it's a combination of a couple of things. One is clarity of understanding. We touched on this earlier, but clarity of understanding on where Microsoft is going with its product roadmap, with industry prioritization, new solution areas we're investing in, and really staying with that. I think the second thing is, as a partner, especially if you have a big business, really understand what's working for you and leverage that. And more importantly, understand what's not and either fix it or deprioritize it. There's, you'd be surprised when I look at partners at how many solutions they have in our marketplace or in our co-sell catalog. And I'd say, hey, you got 100 solutions here. Nine of these are driving big business for you. And 91 of these are doing almost nothing for you. Why are you carrying around this baggage of these solutions that have, like, either the market doesn't want or they're mispositioned and the market doesn't understand what they do? Fix them or get rid of them. And so I think that like ruthless prioritization of how can you find success with Microsoft? And as soon as you see that inkling of success, accelerate those factors as much as you can and deprioritize the stuff that's not working anymore. And then the last one is connections with each other, like this P2P concept. And Microsoft's tried to get involved in this before, and we're always awkward in how we facilitate these collaborations. But I look at the relationship between a services partner and an ISV, and what a good services partner can do for an ISV that's built really interesting intellectual property. Microsoft can't broker those relationships for you, but industry events, a lot of these big services partners and CSPs are doing these kind of Shark Tank style opportunities for partners to come in and showcase what they do. Think about that. Think about the durability of your business, not just between your business relationship with Microsoft, but your business relationship with the entire community that is the Cloud Partner Program. So Dan, you're joining us for a very special event where partners are going to be in the room and you talk about partner to partner. I think there's a key, that's a key aspect of what this event will be about this ultimate partnerships mastermind. 
What should partners attending the event expect or look for from your keynote session? Yeah, I'm going to talk about one of your peers, Vince, and a, another big industry influencer recently published an article where he, he calls Microsoft's partner ecosystem a bellwether for the industry. As humbled as I was by that, the reality is the big four, big five in, the, in, in, in my ecosystem, my big competitors in the partner space, we all kind of chase each other. Every, everybody thinks that, man, what we're doing is messed up and let's go look at our competitors and see what they're doing and let's figure out how to respond to what they're doing. As I recruit industry leaders and have worked with a team that's going to move throughout the ecosystem, I always realize that we all have the same perspective of each other. Everybody thinks that their competitor is doing it better than they are. And what I realize now is that there, there are a lot of eyes on Microsoft on where we're going, not only from our partner ecosystem, but our, the competitive landscape as well. And that puts a level of pressure on the team to, to keep us competitive and keep opportunities in the market that are very much relevant for our ecosystem. I think what differentiates Microsoft is we've got almost a half a million organizations that work with us. That is, when you look at the number of employees of those half a million companies, it is millions and millions of people that come in inside Microsoft's ecosystem every week, every month, every year to work with us and transact. And where we work really hard is to take care of numbers that large, right? We've got one of our starter kit programs. We have over 100,000 partners in that one alone. And so anytime you make adjustments to these programs, you're not impacting a couple of partners, you're impacting thousands of partners and you want to make sure that you're getting it right. But you also want to be a bellwether for the industry. You want to go bold. You want to make big kind of industry market making decisions and you want to signal to the channel and your competitors channels, this is where we're going. This is how we are going to go to market and sell with our partners for the next probably one to two decades. And so when I meet with your event that's coming up, Really, I want it to be a bi-directional exchange between me and, and the industry leaders that you invite into that session to just, let's get real about that. Let's get real about what we think the next decade in tech looks like. Let's get real about the value of these channels and the way we will go to market and sell together. Let's talk about what's working and celebrate it. And more importantly, let's talk about what's not working and, and come up with a plan to fix it. So excited to have you, Dan, come to our event. So as you might know from previous interviews, I'm fascinated with the career journey. and. I've also had the opportunity to work in public sector with some amazing leaders from the military. In fact, my 9-11 post, I talked about my really profound respect for those who have been in service for our nation. You are a major in the Army Reserves. You've been in active service. I'd love to hear more about how you got here at Microsoft into this role, how your career and your journey led you here. Yeah, that's a great question. And what, first off, I want to thank you. I read your 9-11 post and it was very much relevant and moving. Thank you for, and it was incredibly well compiled. So thank you for putting the time. I think you, you really paid an honor and a tribute to the sacrifices of that day and the fact that even though a lot of years have passed between now and, and 2001, but I think for the generation that was that was alive and very much present when that moment unfolded, that stays with us, right? I mean, we're never going to forget that. And I, I appreciate you keeping that memory alive. On the Army side, I've got kind of a cool story. I was, so I'll, I'll, at the end of this, you'll be able to guess my age, but I was in university at the early stages of both the Iraq and Afghanistan wars happening simultaneously. And I come from a long line of service members in my family. And I had made the decision as a very young man that I was going to join the military. I just, I didn't really know how to do it. And I, when I, I figured out college was going to be for me and I wanted a commission as an officer because I, I, I always kind of envisioned life beyond the military and what would be next. And so I, I did an ROTC program at my school in Boston and I was ready to go. The mantra then for ROTC cadets is when you graduated, you were going to go to your basically an infantry school. All of us would go to infantry school at Fort Benning, Georgia. 
then you go to a short specialty school beyond that, and then you would deploy to the Middle East. That was the plan for all of us. They, from like day one of, of those commissioning programs, that's what they told you. And so you had that mindset. And I got really lucky. The school I was in was a co-op school. And so we would do these six-month inter- extended internships in the industry while we were going through school. And I was, I was in a computer engineering program. My last co-op I did with Microsoft. I was like, this is the 21-year-old version of me. And I, I, I got accepted by Microsoft. I moved from Boston to Seattle for six months. I had an amazing internship. I actually worked for the team that was building the Partner Membership Center. This is the thing we now call Partner Center. I was an engineer on that team. Wow. The last day of my internship, I walked out of the building for the last time after saying goodbye to my colleagues. And I could feel somebody behind me. And so I, I turned and looked over my shoulder as I walked out the door and it was my manager. And she had an envelope in her hand and she handed it to me and she said, hey, when you get home, open the envelope and call me when you're ready. And so I didn't, I think I made it three steps out of the building before I just tore the envelope open and you know, ejected the contents. And it was an offer letter from Microsoft. So I, I like any college kid who just got their first full-time job offer, I, 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 I don't know, probably sprinted back to the car, called my parents first and then went back to school a week later. And I sat down with my ROTC battalion commander. And I showed him the letter. And he said, Dan, you'd be crazy not to take this for a company with goals as audacious as Microsoft. He said, let's set you up, take this job offer because you're still going to go to the Middle East. You're still going to do your army stuff, but let's get you set up in Redmond first. Then we'll get you back down to Fort Benning, Georgia. We'll get you through your training and we'll figure out next steps beyond that. And so they switched me over to an army reserve commission. And uh, I've been with Microsoft and the army actually the same length of time. Both started the same year and now I've almost 16 years in, in the army and almost 16 years at Microsoft. A couple of trips to Afghanistan between then and now, but the company's been incredible. I, just the amount of resources they make available for reservists and veterans and National Guards men and women has been really, really phenomenal. And it's been a good pairing because what I do in the military is totally different than what I do at Microsoft. But the fundamentals of leadership and building direction and motivating people, those things are evergreen, right? It doesn't matter where you go. The fundamentals of leading human beings is always the same. And so it's been a lot of fun to have those two parts of my life working in tandem. Not always easy, but always always a lot of fun. And, and I'm proud to say that I'm going to stick. I'm up for lieutenant colonel in the next couple of years. I'm going to stick with the Army Reserve for a bit longer until I meet everything that I, I feel like I came to do there. I'm just incredibly proud of the men and women that still put the uniform on. And despite a world of uncertainty and, and global conflict, the fact that we still have men and women step up willing to serve, it, it always just reminds me of, of how inspired I am to be in the position that I am and how lucky I am to have the honor to serve these men and women that are coming through in their young careers as well. So well said, Dan. Thank you for your commitment and thank you for your service. That was such an amazing story, such a profound story. I love the fact that Microsoft's respect for and inclusiveness for those who serve. Thank you for your service. I appreciate that, Vince. Thank you. So let's have a little bit of fun. It's one of my favorite questions. Dan, you're hosting a dinner party, an amazing dinner party, and you can pick any place in the world to host this dinner party. We could talk about that also. But you can invite any three guests to this party from the present or the past. Whom would you invite and why? Man, this is a tough one. I think I'll, I'm going to give a kind of different answer on this one. The first one I would do is Gordon Moore because I won't restate Moore's law on this call. I think there's probably enough familiarity with it. But to have the foresight of how fast technology would move, when you look at the adoption curve of anything else in the history of humanity, the way technology has accelerated and the way it's changed adoption curves since then on everything that we produce in technology, to have had the foresight that Mr. Moore had when he founded that principle at Intel, I think was just like, I mean, you just have that 
lens to see in the future. And there's like a, there's always a few leaders who have that, and you don't know how they have it or how they built it or if they're just brilliant or just lucky. But Gordon Moore had it, and, and he certainly Moore's law certainly defined that for us. The second one, I'd say George Washington. I think just the founding father of the nation that I've had a chance to serve for 16 years would love to pick his brain on kind of where his priorities were in that era of our nation's history and uh, to be able to fight for what was a vision of, at the time of freedom and independence, I think is a pretty special thing. And, and it required a lot of gusto and, a, and an amazing leadership capability to get people on board with that vision. And what it's created now, hundreds of years later, has been shaped my life and probably many of your lives as well. And then the last way, one is uh, it'd be a it'd be a dinner for four: Thomas Watson, Steve Jobs, and Bill Gates. Wow! Would, like imagine a and me imagine a dinner for four with those with those brilliant minds and knowing what we know now, being able to hash out what was happening in our industry at the time and where things came from IBM, where things and then what what happened on the backside of that with what two of the major players in the tech industry did. It really at the formation of the personal computer and the way tech really took its foothold in the world, I think would just be such a, like a profound discussion to have as it informs where we're going and what the next 50 years of tech looks like. And I would love to inform my perspective on that journey where we're headed based on a deeper understanding of the past. It's more like, I think more than a dinner party, it might be a summit. I'm looking at this guest list and it's amazing, right? Gordon Moore, first of all, Intel, so much good and amazing, profound knowledge came out of Intel. Right, Moore's Law being one of them, OKR, some of the other things that Intel did, they led the way in so many ways. George Washington, what else can we say about this amazing experiment? And hopefully we'll continue our democracy moving forward. I think the experiment is just in its early days. But then the leaders in tech, right? You got Watson, Gates, and Jobs. What a conversation that'll be. Yeah, and, and to hear, I think to, to be able to revive Watson and Jobs to see where we're at and be able to pick their brain and say, where do you think we go from here? What does the next half century to century look like? And I bet they would place, and if you could bring Gordon Moore into that conversation too, I bet between the four of them, they could place a couple of bets that are that are probably end up paying off. And just how insightful it would be to look at the future through the eyes of the past. I think I'm going to have to come by and bring a bottle of something or a beverage <laughs> because Dan, I want to be a fly on the wall at this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Join us more than welcome. I love it. I love it. Well, you, Dan, have been a truly amazing guest, such a great leader at Microsoft, all the work you do. I've gotten to see a little bit behind the scenes as you've built out some of these programs. And I just want to thank you for all that you do for our partner listeners. Any final words for partners? We've covered a lot of ground here today, but how they can align for success for Microsoft's 2023. Yeah, I, I think I'll respond to the feedback I get from a lot of partners that talks about the pace of change that we move at. And change costs time, change costs money, change change puts a lot of burden on our partner organization. So number one is just a sense of deep respect and appreciation for every single organization that calls a Microsoft partner, both now and in the future, of how much we appreciate the business. Like I'll tell you, my entire team and the entire division I represent at the company, we wouldn't exist without you. So number one, my message to you is thank you. And just a sense of deep committed gratitude and your capabilities and your teams and your sweat equity and everything you drive and bring to the table. And my call to action is give us feedback. If we're moving too fast, tell us. Tell us where we're moving too fast. Tell us where you need us to slow down. If we're not moving fast enough, tell us. Tell us where you want us to see us accelerate, where you want incentive programs and co-sell motions and 
programmatic endorsements and benefits to align to. And if you feel like we're getting it right, tell us that too. We actually, we get pretty special to have that affirmation to say, and I've seen a lot of this in these changes that we're making on the backside of the Microsoft Partner Network and the birth of the Cloud Partner Program of partners saying, you know what, this was past due. We're glad that Microsoft's taken these steps. We're nervous for the future, but we're glad to see these steps finally being enacted. And, and my goal in the future is let's not ever let this get past due. Let's move at the right pace with our partners to respond to your needs and help you build clarity, sense of purpose, and direction to be able to plug into the engines at Microsoft that are going to help drive success for your business. Just keep that conduit for conversation open. And my, my ears are always open and my team's ears are always open as much as we can connect with you. That's the best outcome I can foresee. Thank you so much for the business. And thank you, Vince, today for the time. Well, on behalf of the over 450,000 Microsoft partners, Dan, thank you for this great discussion today. So there you have it. Another amazing guest joins Ultimate Guide to Partnering. And I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Odds are, if you're a technology partner executive and hearing my voice, Chances are you too are looking to accelerate your success through partnerships. I mean, let's face it. We all have seen partnerships that look good on paper, but never live up to their expected results. There are a lot of reasons why partnerships fail. And at Ultimate Partnerships, we help you get it right by applying a proven set of best practices and framework that's used by leading partners working with Microsoft and other technology giants. If you want to learn more, follow the link in the show notes or visit our website at ultimateguidetopartnering.com. I am so excited to announce the Ultimate Partnerships Mastermind. For more details, follow the link in the show notes. I hope you join us, my friend, at the beautiful Gaylord Hotel, October 9th and 10th. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Ultimate Guide to Partnering with your host, Vince Minzione. Online at ultimateguidetopartnering.com and facebook.com slash ultimateguidetopartnering. We'll catch you next time on The Ultimate Guide to Partnering.